This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Margarida from Stories of Win, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Claudia Almeida. Dr. Claudia is a principal investigator at Nova Medical School in Lisbon, Portugal, and her lab investigates how neuronal trafficking dysfunction underlies synapse loss during aging, potentiating Alzheimer's disease. Claudia also happens to be an old mentor and teacher for me, and so I'm really happy to be interviewing her today and sharing her story. Thank you, Claudia, for taking the time to talk to me today. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you, Margarita, so much for thinking of me for this interview. It's uh, my great pleasure to be talking here today with you. Thank you. And so I will start as we usually do. How did you first uh, come into neuroscience? So how I got into neuroscience? Um, I think during my degree in biochemistry, I started to having some contact with neuroscience. And then I remember... Uh, discussing with my father, who was a, a medical doctor, and he um, and and I always I had sh you know shown my interest of being a, a scientist since I was a little kid, and I read Marie Curie biography, and I was like fascinated with uh, discovering things and how not to get bored in your life. So that's something that I really wanted to run away from a boring life. <laughs> And uh, and talking with my dad, he was like, oh, you should really look into the brain because it's really that part of the human body that we know the least. And so this was maybe 30, 25 years ago or something. And so after my degree in biochemistry and my neurochemistry course, I discovered that there was a new master course in neuroscience. And that's where I started studying neuroscience. And it was very interesting to me because it included from the molecular mechanisms to the neuropsychological evaluations of patients with memory loss um, and dementia. And seeing the patients and, and understanding what was behind was something that really got me very intrigued and fascinated. And at the time, I did my uh, research thesis in the lab in Lisbon, where they were doing electrophysiological recordings in brain slices in the hippocampus and, and looking at synaptic activity. And I really, I, although I liked seeing the cells firing, uh, and looking at the screens for the recordings, I didn't see it happening. And I started realizing that that was something that I needed to visualize what was happening. Um, and so anyway, so then I started to get intrigued on, on how, and, and very interested on how this dementia things, uh, happened. And, and that's how I got into neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Because the, your master thesis, if I, if I uh, recall correctly, it was on adenosine and reactive oxygen species, right? Exactly. So at the time, um, we, they were exploring the neuroprotective role of adenosine into, in different uh, stress situations. And my part was a very small part. It was uh, increasing the concentration of um, reactive oxygen species and trying to induce oxidative stress and seeing if 
there was any protective role. And we found some interesting results. I was particularly happy with the fact that after I had already left the lab, uh, Alexandre Mendoza, my advisor, contacted me and, and he said, oh, you know, Claudia, I was looking at your data and I think we should publish this. And I was like, really? I, I mean, I had never thought that what I had done had any relevance, but he was so nice. And um, and so he actually wrote the paper. I I just corrected a few things and, and we published and it was my first paper. And after that, I was always very proud and thinking that that's always, um, it gives you this sense of accomplishment to to publish what you see in the lab and your discovery. So it was a good moment. And a, and a good start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a good start, exactly. It was, it was very nice, yeah. And so I guess then for you doing a PhD was the next step uh, when you were thinking about it during your master's, right? Yes, yes. So I had, I never had, I don't know, maybe I was really naive, but I didn't have many doubts. I mean, I really wanted to be a scientist. So I knew that in order to do that, I needed to do a PhD. So I went for the next step. And I also a bit pushed by my dad and my mom as well. I, I realized that I had to leave Portugal because at the time in Lisbon, where I lived, there was only one um, neuroscience lab <laughs> and, and they didn't do any imaging. So I wanted to see neurons and things happening. So, and then I also wanted the adventure of living in abroad. And, and in Portugal, we have, uh, this, uh, kind of complex of inf inferiority. We think that we are not as good as, uh, uh, elsewhere. I think now less, but at the time it was really dr dramatic. And so I wanted to go to the labs where I wanted to do research in a place where it was best done. I wanted to know how it was like. So I went to interview in different places, like I went to Cold Spring Harbor, I went to Columbia University, I went to Harvard Medical School in Boston, and I also went to Cornell Medical School in, uh, in New York. And in fact, Of all the labs that I that I visit, I ended up choosing the one that was less established. <laughs> so I chose, <laughs> and the reason why was because uh, of the empathy. So I, at that moment, I realized that getting along and and having this click in the interview with the person that is going to advise you in your PhD really made the could make the difference. And on top, uh, and, and so I went, to, I, I decided to go to New York to join the lab of Gunnar Goras that had started maybe a couple of years before. And the reason why I went there was because they were studying Alzheimer's disease and, and it was the main cause of dementia. So I was very intrigued of what it was about. And they had done a very interesting discovery at the time. Um, which was that the uh, Alzheimer's is characterized by the accumulation of amyloid plaques and tangles in the brain. This is the post-mortem characteristic of the disease. But they had uh, looked in the brain in places where there were no plaques in the patient's brain, and they saw that amyloid was also accumulating inside neurons and in endosomes. And then they looked that even in a normal, uh, non-diseased mouse or rat, the same was happening. Amyloid was already there in endosomes. 
And when I interviewed, Gunnar asked me, told me that he was really intrigued what the hell beta amyloid was doing in endosomes. And so that was my big question when I joined the lab a year later after getting funding. And this was really determinant because even if I had the will to go, if I had not the means, I, it would have not been possible. So at the time, the politics in Portugal were very, uh, were really favoring this, um, this experience abroad. So they had the fellowship program that you could go anywhere in the world to do your PhD. And so I applied, I got it and I went. <laughs> and so I had the, the money to stay in New York for four years. In the end, I ended up staying five. And I, I really was having a lot of fun studying, um, looking, trying to look in neurons at the dysfunction of neurons and, and seeing what beta amyloid, why was it toxic? Because we could see in the EM, um, in the electron microscopy of the brain, that wherever you would see beta amyloid accumulating inside neurons, the morphology of the neurons and the synapses didn't look quite uh, right. Uh, but in EM, it's a static image. So we wanted to see the processes happening. So I wanted to see how synapses were functioning, how endosomes was, were functioning. And so I started to get into the cell biology. Can you tell us a bit more about, I mean, a few sentences in the end, what was your PhD project as a whole? Yeah, so the, the, my PhD project was really to understand the consequences of beta amyloid accumulation to uh, synapses and um, And, and, and trafficking. What I had wanted to, so what we found was when we looked at synapses and we could uh, culture primary neurons from mice that were models of um, early onset Alzheimer's disease, that these neurons had synapse loss, so like in vivo. And then we could try to see how it started So we, we saw that if we looked at mature cells that had spent uh, 19 days in vitro, uh, they had really uh, irreversible synapse loss because if we would block beta amyloid production, we would reduce beta amyloid in the neurons, but the synapse would not recover. But then we, we decided, oh, if we would look earlier. So we looked at 12 days in vitro neurons. And in that uh, moment, there was only a postsynaptic dysfunction with loss of um, glutamate receptors postsynaptically. Uh, post and the presynaptic side was still functioning. It was even upregulated, maybe trying to compensate for the postsynaptic change. And, and, and that earliest change was reversible. So the idea was also, we were already thinking that maybe to treat Alzheimer's disease, we had to go early. And it was important to, to, to determine that. And so our big discovery there was that the synaptic uh, glutamate receptors were reduced from synapses, from the postsynaptic density, most likely due to increased endocytosis. So now we know that beta amyloid 
does promote endocytosis of glutamate receptors, kind of depressing, leaving the synapses always in a depressed state. So it's harder to induce LTP. And so it's like it's uh, under a, a permanent long-term depression state. And then uh, we wanted to know, get more into the mechanism. Almost nothing was known at the time about the trafficking of glutamate receptors, like we know now. So it was known about uh, the EGF receptors in, in, in cancer cells and stuff that they had to be, the, that their signaling was regulated and, and terminated or sustained depending where in the endosomes they were. So the sorting within endosomes was important to keep the signaling of uh, plasma membrane receptors. And, and so I thought that maybe there was a parallel here with the glutamate um, receptor. So we went studying EGFR receptors in neurons, which was kind of challenging. No one had done that before. I saw that not all neurons, but some neurons did have um, the EGF receptor. And I found that the trafficking of the EGFR receptor in the endosomes that were affected by beta, that were accumulating amyloid, was uh, disrupted. And then I even implicated that this was also connecting with the, um, the ubiquitin proteasome system because ubiquitin had been discovered not uh, long before to be important in the endocytic, regulating the endocytic trafficking of uh, EGF receptor through endosomes in, on the way to the lysosome. And so I saw that that... Um, kind of regulatory trafficking pathway was affected by beta amyloid. We never knew how beta amyloid was affecting the proteasome, but now it has been shown that once you have a lot of amyloid in endosomes, they can permeabilize endosomes and get to the cytosol. And this way they could be blocking, kind of clogging the proteasome and impeding the recycling of ubiquitin. And so without ubiquitin available, you could not sort the receptors for degradation. So they wouldn't go through the pathway. So that was, uh, that was quite interesting. I published a, a couple of papers. They have been like super cited over the years. So it makes me very happy that people uh, look at what we've discovered and integrate the findings. I also had the opportunity there to collaborate with, um, with, colleagues, uh, with a post, especially with a postdoc, Eric Snyder, that was working in Paul Greengard's lab, because my, my advisor, Gunnar Goras, had uh, also done research with Paul Greengard, which had won the Nobel Prize and had a very big lab and lots of interesting people working there. So that also, uh, although I was in a small lab, I had these collaborations with bigger neuroscience labs. And at the same time, I also got in love with cell biology and trafficking because I remember Gunnar was always telling me, oh, you need to go to the biochemistry trafficking talks because that's where we are going to learn how to study endosomes in neurons. And so I went and in the biochemistry department, which was really like filled with cell biologists, there was really good cell biologists there. And they, uh, learning from them and from their discussions still inspires me to today. It was really very nice. I had their interactions with Fred Maxfield and Tim Ryan, which was a cell biologist doing working with neurons as well. 
uh, Tim McGraw, Enrique Rodriguez Bolan, and these guys, and Bettina Winkler too. Uh, so all of these guys were really inspiring to me. Their approach, their rigor, the way that they prove things and establish causality, which was something that was really not done much, in, especially in the Alzheimer field, which was very, the research was all very macro and, and uh, not understanding the molecular mechanisms behind it. So that was something that I realized then that I wanted to know more. Your uh, PhD sounds like amazing five years and very inspiring as well and convinced you then to take a bit of a more cell biology approach to your research, right? Right, exactly. So then for your postdoc, how, how, did, you, how did you make the decision? Yeah, so... Yeah, it, it came kind of natural to me and it was always um, very science driven. So as I was saying, I got very interested in intracellular trafficking. And at the time, people that were studying trafficking, so the cell biology papers that I was reading, they all consider cells as a ball of things where things happen. And, and it was not very related to the function of the cells. And I was very interested, how was it that in the most specialized cell of our body, in neurons, how is the trafficking of proteins and organelles organized in order to sustain neuronal function, synapses? And, and then it's, how is it organized in the axon where you're supposed to be sending information compared to the dendrites where you're supposed to be receiving information? How is this controlled and, and regulated? And, and basically at the time, there was maybe a couple of labs doing that in the world. And they were one in, in Germany and one in, um, in US. But there, there was some family constraints. So my husband was also a scientist, is also a scientist and he was, uh, doing a postdoc in New York at, uh, while I was finishing my PhD, he was getting ready to, to go on the job market. And so because it was a lot harder to find a job than to find a postdoc, we decided, okay, you find a, a job in the world somewhere and then I'll look for a postdoc. And of course, he tried to look for jobs in, in big cities where the offer would be uh, good so that I could find a good lab too. And he ended up uh, finding a job in Paris. So he started his lab in Paris and I went to look for labs in Paris. And I didn't find a lab doing what I wanted to do, but I found a lab at the Institut Curie at the department focused uh, in uh, cell biology. Uh, and there were lots of labs there working in really interesting cell biology problems, all related to cancer, but there was a big parallel in terms of how trafficking relates to function and dysfunction of cells. And in this lab, they were studying these types of endosomes where we had seen that beta amyloid was accumulating, which are the multivesicular endosomes. And they had a really cool way of purifying these endosomes. And they were also studying something that I uh, got more interested in, which was the cytoskeleton. So they were looking at the interactions between actin cytoskeleton and endosomes and how this uh, allows to control the function of, um, of endosomes, of trafficking. And, and at the same time, these endosomes, these multivesicular endosomes, was emerging as a new cellular sorting station um, 
in the cell, like the Golgi had been and uh, like the, the plasma membrane. And now also the endosomes were really important. And so I was really fascinated by that. And, and so I decided to join the lab of uh, Danielle Louvard, where I was working with the sub-PI kind of uh, Evelyn Coutrier that had been working on myosins, which are these actin motors, and interaction with endosomes, not so much for the transport of endosomes because they these myosins don't really move much. They are uh, really responsible to connect the, the actin um, fibers, the, the cytoskeleton to the endosomes and exert force. So by hydrolyzing ATP, they can contract and basically pull on membranes, pull on, on actin and help deform the membranes. And these membrane deformations are very important for function because if you pull a tubule, you lead to recycling of proteins. If you make, if you allow for an, an inward budding, you make an endocytic vesicle or you make uh, or you could potentially make, um, this is not known yet, <laughs> we are working on it, uh, the um, inner luminal vesicles of these endosomes. And so then I, I went there and, and I joined and I really had the time of my life. So I was, I mean, I always had a lot of fun. So I think this is also something that if I would say, uh, that I often say to the students, you need to keep on having fun because Doing science is, is, is hard and it's frustrating. Things don't work as fast as we like and they're not that easy. So if you're not having fun, it's, it's really a lot harder. I think then it's not worthwhile. But I had a lot of fun. I remember that going to the lab meetings or going to the department meetings and one talk after the other, I was like, oh my God, I love this. Oh, this is so exciting. And, and it really, I was always asking questions and trying to understand everything. I was really, really very engaged. And, and that was, that was very, very cool. Um, so that's then I spent uh, five years doing a postdoc how I got to the postdoc at the Institut Curie in Paris, which by the way, it's a fantastic city to live in. <laughs> okay, so then I'll, I think I'll ask you the same question, which is, can you describe in few sentences, how did you wrap up your postdoc project? Yeah, so this, I remember suffering a bit in the beginning. So when I started the postdoc, I felt very pressured because I had had a few nice papers in my PhD, but I did not have a nature cell or science. And by the time that I started my postdoc, I knew that if I wanted to be a PI, I should nail one of these big uh, journals which is something which I don't like about our field, but it's like these rules of these games. Things are starting to change now, but still slowly. But at the time, it was really determinant. If you didn't have a big paper, you could not continue. And so in the beginning of my postdoc, I was aware of this and I started studying this myosine 1B and knocking it down in cells and trying to see what does it do to endosomes? And I was searching, 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 and nothing. After six months, I did not have a phenotype. I was really like, oh my God, what did I get into? And, and I remember um, 
noticing something weird, but it was not about the endosomes. It was about the Golgi. So the, the, the trans-Golgi network seemed a lot more compact and without these post-Golgi vesicles all, all around in the cytoplasm. But I was very insecure of myself. I was like, oh, maybe not. I don't see this in all cells. And is this really true or not? And then I talked with my husband, also a scientist and a cell biologist, and I showed him the data and he's like, Claudia, you have a phenotype. And I was like, really? You think so? I don't, I'm not sure. I was like, my imposter syndrome was really kind of uh, killing me. And then I told my PI and she was like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I need to go to the microscope with you. And she went to the microscope with me and she looked at my slides and she was like, oh yeah, I see it. It's really there. And it was kind of a difficult for her moment for her too, because she had spent, I don't know, maybe 10 years studying that myosin 1B and, and finding that it was functioning in on endosomes. And suddenly we had data that it might be doing something at the TGN2. And she was like, okay. Um, and, and she was like, okay, but so if you have this phenotype, you need to figure out what it's doing. So I started studying it. And of course, it was nice to be at Curie because there were people next door studying the Golgi. So I could go there and learn and, and discover the tools and, 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 uh, and I got things going. And so then I, I indeed discovered this uh, cool thing that it was thought at the time that in order for proteins to leave the TGN, you only needed microtubules and kinesins to pull the membrane and to bring the, these tubular carriers to the plasma membrane or to the other cellular locations. And basically what I discovered was that before the, myosin, the kinesins could pull on the this this uh, TGN tubules, you needed the myosin to deform the membrane. So without the myosin, the membrane of the TGN was just completely flat, and 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 it was affecting the actin. So we could see that actin, you had these little patches of actin close to the Golgi that were gone when we knocked down myosin, and we recovered when we put myosin back. And then we saw also that the motor activity of the myosin was required. So we made mutants, it didn't work anymore. So we could really explain the mechanism that implicated this myosin at the TGN, which was new, that it was important to make these uh, transport carriers uh, and that it needed to cooperate with this microtubule kinesins dependent transport in order for the cell to function. So, so that was cool. We published a, a nature cell biology paper, which I was like, it was one of my most happy moments when, oh, it's accepted. And I was like jumping everywhere. And it was like really cool. So anyway, so this nature cell biology paper really opened the door and allowed me to uh, keep going and keep trying to to go for and to start applying uh, to try to get a job and to go to the next step, which was to start my lab. I think that's, um, I feel like a common path for a lot of people that uh, there is a need in their postdocs to have a good paper so that it can open them the doors that they need for their next step. And uh, I'm curious, was it for you always um, an interest of you to become a PI? I mean, I think... 
Yes, I don't know if I don't know if I thought about that too much. I mean, I always kind of take each step of the way. Um, I think what started triggering me to want to be a PI was the need to research what I was curious about. So as I told you, at the end of my PhD, I had clear questions that I wanted to answer and I did not manage to do research on them uh, during my postdoc. And so that those questions were still bugging me. So of course, during the time that I was studying myosins and the Golgi, I kept on reading and studying about Alzheimer's and I, I knew that that's what I wanted to continuing researching. And, and there were, I try, there were, yeah, so I, I really felt the need to be independent to pursue my questions. Um, and I didn't want to compromise anymore to do other things. I always, I never felt it hard. I mean, when I was studying myosins, I, I was very excited and, and very interested. It was just that um, at a certain moment, I really wanted to do what I wanted uh, <laughs> when I wanted. I don't know how to explain it well, but it, it felt, I got to a moment at the end of my postdoc that I either I could work on my questions or I would rather do something else. So I didn't want to continue to work for someone else's lab. So I wanted to kind of... Uh, decide what to work on. That was my big motivation to become a PI. That's, that's really interesting. And um, how, did, how did the process go of applying to jobs and uh, settling down? Oh, that was really hard. I mean, I think this was one of the most challenging things. The one thing is for you to say that you want to do it, but then when you, the first challenge was uh, uh, writing my first job proposal. And soon after I published, uh, again, my husband triggered me into, okay, now you have to write down what would you do if you have your lab. And this came, then there was also this family issues, right? Because at the time when I finished my postdoc, I was very pregnant. So basically I, I finished my postdoc when I went on maternity leave. <laughs> So my son uh, was born 10 days after I finished in the lab. <laughs> my second son, yeah. So I had the first, the first, uh, my first son was born two years into, uh, two years and a half into my postdoc. So that's when I was, I was very lucky because I was already writing uh, the first draft of the manuscript. And so I was entering the publication phase, which still lasted at least a couple of years. Um, and, uh, so there it was challenging to, to organize myself physically and mentally to kind of divide my mental space and to be able to concentrate in research and not thinking about the diapers or if the kids were sleeping or if they were sick or this. And so compartmentalize my brain. This was a challenge for me. Um, I, I, I felt there that my husband had an advantage. He could much more easily turn off parenthood and turn on scientist mode. For me, this was hard, but he really made a lot of a difference. I think his support and was really 
very, very important for me to be able to continue. We talk about this and I read a lot about this, that women stop doing science because of this, um, this difficulty of coping with parenthood and, uh, and, and doing research. And I think our partners are essential. Uh, their support was, his support was essential to me to, to really create space so that I could concentrate in, in figuring out and, and what I wanted to do with my research. And at the same time, he, because he had a lab, so I, as soon as the baby was old enough to stay with the nanny, I, I would run away to his lab and in a corner, I sat down and I wrote the, the research proposal and I started applying. So once I finished my research idea, um, I, I started sending it to different places and applied to all the opportunities that, that appeared. And, um, and some just for practice. I remember that the first one I applied to Denmark, there was a, a, a job opening there. And I did not want to go to Denmark, but I applied just to see how the process went. And, and that was important to get me started. And it was difficult to choose to also what do I want to research on? Because I had so many ideas. How do I choose? And, and at the time, I remember struggling a little bit if I should go back to my original ideas in the that had come out of my PhD or if I should do other things that I was also interested in. And, and there I also I think I was also kind of naive. I don't know. I think in the end I chose to work on what I was more what I ended up thinking about, like I was reading all these papers and studying all of this. And at the end of the day, my gut feeling was still going back. To what I was more excited was going back to Alzheimer's disease. But Alzheimer's disease is a very tough field. It's very competitive. There's very, uh, there's very dogmatic researchers. I knew it wouldn't be easy for a a young PI to, uh, to find a niche, something that I could contribute and be relevant and also, uh, have my, my space, right. To, and there, uh, my PhD advisor was also very important. So we kept a really good relationship and through the years he's been, um, participating in my research life and, and being very important. So he said that, in that the um, that the knowledge that I had acquired through all the the time uh, that I had spent thinking and studying Alzheimer's disease, and the new ideas that I had now coming from a cell fundamental cell biology background, being br bringing them back into Alzheimer's was really necessary because he felt that the research continued to be very. Uh, little of it was mechanistic and people didn't really know what they are. I mean, you needed to invest on understanding the molecular and cellular mechanisms in order to feel, to fuel future therapeutical strategies that the field was kind of running out of ideas of trying to get rid of plaques and get, trying to get rid of tau that new strategies needed were ne needed. And so he said, you can make a difference, Claudia. <laughs> So, and I was like, okay, if you think so. <laughs> so 
but in the end, I really liked it. And I also had hoped that it would help getting funding because there's a lot of um, funding opportunities to work in Alzheimer's. And uh, so I thought also, maybe this is also important. And, and that's how I, I kind of came back to the research in Alzheimer's disease. That was uh, an important moment. Not only came back to Alzheimer's disease, but also to Lisbon and uh, to a new institute. So was that a challenge? Yeah, yes, that was a, so it was a big challenge because it, it almost didn't happen because I was applying in, in Paris, um, also to Denmark, but, but in, but not real, uh, but in, and to Lisbon because I had, I like Portugal a lot and I liked, uh, to be close to my family. So, And I always had this kind of uh, idealistic view that I think it's good to go abroad to get trained, but we should always try to give back to our country and help developing it because otherwise uh, it won't move forward as well. So I had this idea that I wanted to contribute to my country. And so I always wanted to come back. So I was applying to come back to Portugal And it was like really, uh, again, the politics of science in Portugal also became favorable at the time because they, the, they created a new program, which they called Investigator FCT. And it was a, a, a program designed to support new independent group leaders at different levels. So if you were starting, in, uh, if you were intermediate or if it were advanced and trying to bring people at these different levels back to Portugal, uh, also to support people in Portugal, but there was a big emphasis on, on trying to bring people back. So not only they were supporting your salary, uh, the program, but also giving a startup money for you to start the lab. And, uh, and, and at the European level, uh, there was also the European Commission had a program for people that were abroad to come back to their country. So they were giving a very nice grant, um, I mean, that you could apply for. And, and I had applied for those things, but the results took a long time to come out and I was getting a little anxious and needing to decide if I should keep on trying to become a PI or if I should do something else. And this was because in my, uh, I always wanted to do research, but I always thought that maybe I won't be able to do it forever. But my decision was uh, very early on that I would do research for as long as I could. And I would have fun for as long as I could. And then if it, once I could not, I would do other things because I was also interested in doing many other things. So I'm sure I would find interesting things to do. And so in that uh, year of 2012, I thought that uh, the moment had come to start looking for other things to do. So I started to apply to the industry and uh, to, you know, whatever came out that seemed interesting. And I actually got a job in Paris as a project manager for international consortium on rare diseases at INSERM. And I started the job and it was very interesting. It was like networking and setting up a project that had this uh, idealistic uh, 
view of bringing all the rare patients together and cure rare diseases. And it was really interesting. So I was like very motivated and learning about this new aspect of, of potentiating research, not done by me, but of others. And one month into the job, I receive an email saying that I had received the, the Marie Curie integration grant to go back to Portugal. And now I don't remember if I got this one first or the investigator FCT, but it was, I think it was first the Marie Curie. And I remember, oh my God, I got this. And now I got this job. And what can I do if I have money for the lab, but still I don't have a salary or a position. So I told that guy, my husband and said, oh, I don't think we can go back with this, but it's a waste or oh, what a pity, but it's okay. And one week after I got the investigator FCT, which was salary and more money to start up the lab. And then I told him, I cannot miss this opportunity. <laughs> uh, you need to figure out a way of moving your lab to Portugal because <laughs> uh, I need to go back. And he he was so nice. Again, he supported me and and he did. He, he, he came back to Portugal and he set up his lab and it was like a, a bit of a challenge to him too, but he succeeded. He's fantastic and he made it. And so we both made it to our way back to Portugal. And that's how I started uh, my lab. And I chose um, SEDOC at the time, a new institute in the Nova Medical School, which is one of the medical schools here in Lisbon. And again, I interviewed in other places of much more established institutes like the IMM, the Institute of Molecular Medicine, and IBMC in Porto. And I, and I chose the underdog, so I don't know. There's something about me that <laughs> makes me choose what is small and underdeveloped. And I, maybe it's this um, idealistic view I have of the world of wanting to change things and build things. So I was very challenged and excited by Antonio Jacinto and Miguel Siabra that wanted to start this new lab, this new research institute. And I wanted to help build something new. And I loved uh, their idea of the focus of cell biology and me molecular mechanisms of disease. And they are interested in aging related diseases. And so because they wanted to recruit a lot of people working on trafficking, I was like, this is where I want to be. <laughs> and so I went back to Portugal and I started my lab back in 2013. So next year will be 10 years that I've started my lab. Yes, a long journey. And um, through a perspective and also currently, what is, what is it that your lab does? Yeah, so in the end, um, what my lab is doing is has to do with that moment where I was studying and, and thinking about what I was wanting to research. So one of the things that came out in two, end of 2011, 2012, that I found very exciting, was that geneticists started to look at the genome of patients with the most common forms of Alzheimer's disease and trying to see if there was any difference that could explain um, a genetic heritability so that Alzheimer's disease, the, its most common forms are not, don't have a, a, a one gene, it's, they are not monogenetic, 
uh, as a, but they have a strong genetic predisposition. So we know that in families that have Alzheimer's disease, it's more frequent. Um, Alzheimer's disease is more frequent and it's associated with aging. So it only appears, these most common forms only appears when you are older. Uh, so after 65 years of age and they had identified genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. And I was thrilled that the conclusion of the two nature papers that came out at the time was that the most important genes, maybe one third of them were regulators of intracellular trafficking. And I was like, bling, 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 bling. Oh my God, I need to figure out what these genes are doing. Why is endocity trafficking dysfunction important for Alzheimer's disease? And one of them was even an actin regulator that I had been studying in my postdoc. So then I was like, okay, perfect. This is pointing me. This is one way I want to go. And so this is what we've been one of the things that we've been, we have kind of two questions running in the lab, both related to what causes this uh, age-related forms of Alzheimer's disease. One concerns two genetic risk factors that are regulators of endocytic trafficking. And, and we've been studying it first because of beta amyloid being produced in endosomes. So it relates to what I was doing in my PhD. I was studying what were the consequences of the endosomal beta amyloid accumulation. And now I'm studying why do these genetic risk factors increase the production of beta amyloid on endosomes? And is this toxic? So First, we show that, yes, they do. They make more beta amyloid because they change specific steps of the endocytic trafficking that could be corrected to decrease this beta amyloid production. But now we are investigating if this beta amyloid is sufficient to cause problems at synapses. And what we are finding is very interesting, and it's not what we expected, is that although beta amyloid contributes these genes have synaptic functions. So the genes themselves control the endocity trafficking, which is important for synapses. And this is bringing me closer to what I really wanted to understand, which is how intracellular trafficking supports synaptic function. So we're seeing that the, their disruption is changing the function of synapses. In process, we are not there yet in the processes related the, with mechanisms, cellular mechanisms of memory. This is where we want to get to, but we are getting closer. And, and so I think it's uh, kind of shifting the, the, we want to contribute to a shift in the paradigm that maybe in the most common forms of Alzheimer's disease, what starts, it's not beta amyloid accumulation, but it's endosomal dysfunction. Endosomes, not only the endolysosomal system, we think that the lysosome is also being uh, attacked, let's say, not by the gen gen genes, but by aging, because lysosomal dysfunction is a mechanism of cellular aging, and it affects dramatically 
neurons because they are post-mitotic and they live all our lives. So this is another thing we are studying. What's the impact of aging for neuronal function? From the perspective of a cell that lives all our lives, what's the impact on the way it gets organized? How does it sustain synapses? So that's what we are studying in the lab right now. I guess we are a bit already over time, but I, I, I really want to ask you, there is a science, of course, but then there is a big component. I mean, the most crucial component of being a PI, which is managing the team and everything else related. How has that been for you? That has been, um, I think maybe the, the, I don't know if it's the biggest challenge, but it's one for sure one of the biggest challenges because we are really through our path, mine, like many others, we are trained and we learn how to do research, but we are not trained to train people on how to do research. So when I started the lab, I, I tried to teach how I do it. And now I think I've already changed my gears to try to teach them to figure out how they want to do it. <laughs> and so this has been quite of a challenge, but also very rewarding. And I teach also um, undergraduates and, and masters, and now I'm even coordinating a master program. So I think my interests are changing too, not only to be excited about the research, but also in this uh, training of people, of changing the way they think about science, the critical thinking, and their attitude in, in life as well. I think this has been very rewarding for me and, uh, and, a, and a challenge continues to excite me. Okay, yeah, that, that's really nice. And uh, I, I think that's a great way to make an impact as well on the future generations of scientists. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. And um, okay, I think we can finish podcast with something light. What is it something that you like to do for fun outside of the lab? If you're not in the lab, what are you doing? Okay, so this has changed. Also, I was at, at the end of my PhD, when all that frustration comes, I was really into photography and I was doing a lot of photography and that's, that uh, continues still, uh, but less with the COVID pandemics and having to stay at home and living with all the frustration and, and difficulties of that period, I got into tricot knitting and crochet as well. So I do a lot of uh, those and, and I'm discovering a, a new community of people that do things with their hands, which I find really fascinating. And and yeah, it's something that has been exciting me a lot to, to get back to the basics, if I can say so. I think we need to get less sophisticated and less, I think still into technology, but less into luxury stuff and back to the doing your own clothes. It's something that uh, I, I like, I have fun doing. Okay. Okay. I think, I think this was a, a successful interview. We talked about your journey, your challenges and uh, your love. It was a pleasure to interview you, Claudia. Thank you. Thank you so much, Margarita, for giving me the opportunity to tell my stories.